Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Railston and I'm your host. I'm actually back. Gary Lineker was supposed to replace me on today's podcast, but he has solved out his spat with the BBC. So I'm back. I'm back in the hot seat. And I'm alongside my esteemed colleagues, Samuel Luckhurst and Rich Fay, who were at the game on Sunday afternoon. Obviously, Manchester United drew with Southampton 0-0 at Old Trafford. And we'll get into the analysis of that game throughout this podcast. But first, I'll check on the well-being of my two colleagues. Samuel, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are you, Sim? I'm, I'm glad to see um, that you've graced us with us present, uh, your presence. I thought you were off for all of this week, but clearly not. I signed off a bit too early, didn't I, on Friday? I thought I could get away with not being on the podcast today, um, but quite clearly not. Rich, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. I think a bit run down, but under the weather, but uh, being joined by you on the podcast always makes me feel like a lot better. Well, you look absolutely beautiful, Rich, so don't you worry about that, son. don't you worry. Um, Samuel, we'll just get straight into it. Obviously, a nil-nil game, a goalless draw in the end, but it was obviously marred by that Casemiro incident, which completely changed the complexion of the game in the end. I always like to get your initial thoughts. What, what was your verdict on the game, your overall analysis and your takeaway when leaving Old Trafford on Sunday evening? For nil-nil, it was quite enthralling. Uh, Rich and I were saying the first half an hour uh, had, had really dragged, even though there were a few chances in it. It, it wasn't a particularly uh, absorbing match at all. And then it, it took off with with the red card and United had a brief, brief flurry towards the end of the half that had uh, inexplicably one minute added to it, which was just staggering given the red card stoppage must have been minimum three minutes, maybe nearer five minutes overall. And although the, the referee was always going to um, be the the focus of the post-match press conference, I think in the end, the, the result was certainly fair. I mean, Southampton were very adventurous. They were very proactive when it was 11 versus 11. So there's, there's some encouragement for them to extract from it the way they performed 11 versus 11, 11 versus 10 even though they're bottom of of the table but really i i was just i found it quite perplexing that ten hag underestimated southampton's midfielders and you've got ward prowse who is a very very accomplished premier league midfielder and has been for a number of years and and romeo lavio has been excellent whenever i've seen him play for southampton this season having joined from city in the summer so it was peculiar that united went into the game with one central midfielder and Bruno Fernandes who played pretty well in midweek is played out of position again it might have been the first time he's ever actually played in central midfield for United from the start he has dropped back there during games I think he did on his debut but I think he's pretty much started every game as one of the front four normally of course as, as the number 10 and and that tactic didn't work United did look a bit imbalanced I thought after the uh, red card with McTominay coming on for Veghorst, it didn't leave them with a, a, a focal point, really. I mean, Veghorst was poor. Uh, his header from Shaw's cross, it was a free header, it goes over the uh, defender's head, was just tame. I mean, it was reminiscent, really, of what a defender would do if they're trying to nod it back to the goalkeeper to uh, to defend in that situation. Uh, I, I'm struggling to think of a United player who's started 16 successive games and has played as bang averagely at best as Veghorst, but that experiment might be prolonged this week because of um, because of the circumstances. And when United did have Garnacho and Palistrion for Sancho and uh, Anderson in the second half, I thought they were more balanced because it was more, you couldn't really, you, it, there was no confusion anymore there. You knew Garnacho would be on the left, you knew Palestri would be on, right, on the right, you knew Rashford would be up front. And so they looked a lot more settled like that. Whereas with Sancho, 
who was playing as the number 10. He kept on drifting out to the right-hand side, causing congestion there, deprived United of a creative presence in the middle. And if you've not got a number 10 and the number nine is is barely a number nine, you're going to struggle to create opportunities that way. And so it wasn't a surprise that you know, Fernandez is closer to that number 10 role when he had his shot in the second half that Gavin Bazunu did brilliantly to tip onto the post. I mean, Bazunu might have got the man the match award just because of the quality of his saves, but Southampton must have had four or five really good chances. De Gea made a couple of good saves. Ward-Prowse's free kick hit the bar. Um, there was the Walker-Peters shot that hit the post as well. Uh, so it was it was remarkable it ended nil-nil in the end because both goals did seem to lead charmed lives. And I, I could understand where Ten Hag was coming from afterwards and that he was quite sanguine with with the result and that United had given a good account for themselves given that they played with 10 men for probably an hour of that game overall with with added time on top of it. There were some very good individual performances in defence. I mean, Rich and I both agreed that Martinez and and Luke Shaw were were very good. But again, you go back to the attack and the over-reliance on Rashford and sometimes if Rashford has an off day as he did at Anfield and he did again yesterday because he had two excellent chances at uh, I say it nil nil. Ended nil nil, but at eleven versus eleven, when his one on one, his finish was really quite peculiarly tame. And and the one time Sancho did manage to play a pass from uh, that that number ten role he was supposed to occupy, Rashford miscontrolled it, and and Bazunu was out to to claim the ball. So uh, the, nothing really new learnt from how United approach games or the the state of their squad, etc. Uh, but. And also the setback of, of not winning it is somewhat tempered by another full storm for Liverpool losing at Bournemouth. And although Tottenham won impressively against Nottingham Forest, as everyone expected them to, it's Tottenham. And I don't think anybody is really, uh, certainly from United's perspective, I don't think they'll be necessarily unnerved by what Tottenham may do over the next uh, over the next couple of months as far as Champions League qualification is is concerned. I must admit, a half time. <clears throat> pardon me, I thought Southampton would be uh, would get a goal, and especially they came up with the traps quite quick. And I was chatting to Rich, who was obviously in the press box alongside you, Samuel, and he said, nah, I don't think they'll score. But as that half progressed, they looked a bit more dangerous and dangerous. And fair play to United because they rallied against it with 10 men. It was a brave performance in the end. Let's talk about that Casemiro red card then, Rich, because that was a, obviously a huge talking point. Um, in the 34th minute, straight red. Um, he did win the ball at first, but then he obviously does catch the man. I tweeted after um, my analysis, basically saying that for me, it was definitely a red card um, and obviously got a ton of pelters. So where do you stand on that debate? Because there has been conversation around on social media those last 24 hours, whether it should have been a red card. Because I think the problem is, for me, yeah, it is a red card, but the wider problem is consistency, isn't it? You see across the Premier League this weekend, the challenges that have been like that, but they have not been penalised yet. Casemiro has shown another straight red and he's now going to miss four games and that's going to be a huge, huge blow, isn't it? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there that it is just about consistency, really, this one, because you can see why it was given. I mean, Casemiro's given the referee a decision to make there and he's followed through the studs up and if that goes against United, they'll want a red card and it's one of those where if you're on the receiving end of it, then you're going to feel aggrieved to to have that red card because sometimes they do go unpunished, but that doesn't mean that this one shouldn't have gone unpunished. And again, that is all that it stems down to. As an isolated incident, then there could be no complaints. But if you look at the wider refereeing decisions and what we've seen all, all season, then there is obviously got to be a defence there and a case for United to, to feel hard done by. But it was just... Uh, 
a challenge that you know sort of reflected the, the nature nature of the game. Really, United had lost possession again cheaply. They were having to make amends in their own half. Casemiro's gone in too strong there, too powerful on on his opposite man. The fact that Southampton players consoled him. I mean, Alvarez was back on his uh, Alvarez was back on his feet already um, by the end of it, and he was consoling Casemiro. Anthony was consoling him as well. The players who you know are out there every single week will feel that it was harsh to see someone sent off for that. But I don't think United have any complaints. I also don't think that they can put their poor performance down to the fact they had 10 men because they were open and they were porous before that before that sending off. And yes, on another day, they might go and actually win the game if it's 11 versus 11, but they didn't and they can't change that now. I think there is the positive though, that last season, if they went down to 10 men that game, they do lose it. And of course, they rode their luck at times. Fear Walcott had two great chances for Southampton. He squandered both of them. De Gea made some good saves. Martinez, as Samuel said, was excellent. And I think there is a silver lining to it that, you know, United will still see it as two points dropped, but last season they probably would have dropped all three points in that scenario. So they showed good mentality and did well to to rally on and not let it affect them too much. It suited their style of play, really. They could play on the counter-attack and embrace it, but the midfield experiment failed horribly and Casemiro's red card obviously exploited that further, but even before the red card, United's midfield was was a shambles, really, against Southampton, bottom of the table, but their biggest strength is, is their own midfield and United. <laughs> Obviously, we'll see it's two points dropped, but they might be fortunate to have actually got anything from the game at all. It's a very good point you make, obviously, about the midfield battle, because that was lost and that was crucial, but we'll, we'll get on to that in a moment. Um, I'll just say, lads, never trust Chi Adams. He was going up to the referee behind Casemiro's back and trying to get him sent off. And then when Casemiro walked off the pitch, he was like, oh, no worries, Casemiro, being his mate. So if, if Chi Adams told you the sky was blue, don't believe him. That's just a tip from me. Um, another refereeing incident then Samuel a big uh, debate a big call was obviously that penalty incident the penalty claim ball went into the box I think it was Bacocha, um kind of hit his chest or kind of hit his hand I'll leave that up to you he pulled it away um, so it's been said that he didn't have the intention obviously to play the ball with his hand where do you stand on the incident and do you think United had a, a genuine claim for a penalty there? It was a genuine claim. There's there's no doubt about that. The ball does hit his chest, which is something that, again, in terms of taking incidents out of context, sometimes people on Twitter are as bad as, it, as, as, as the referees or the VAR with, with their replays because they will just present it. Here's the screenshot as if to say that's a definite penalty yeah. when the ball did hit Bella Koch up on the chest first and then it hits his hand. I think normally if it hits a part of your body and then it goes onto the hand, you're quite content without even having to see it. You'd say, well, that shouldn't be a penalty. I think with yesterday's one, he's, his positioning is so, so clumsy. I don't know how he lost his footing. He must have just you know, tried to adjust and uh, and then all of a sudden he loses his balance. But he's in such a clumsy position. His, bod- his hand is in an unnatural position as well, which is this terminology that seems to be brought up every time there is a handball incident. And it does stop the ball going to Veghorst. Uh, I, I can imagine there was some fa- United fans saying, and it stopped Veghorst from scoring. Well, it, it's probably just as well it didn't go to Veghorst because he <laughs> certainly wouldn't have finished it. But that's by the by. So I think United did have a legitimate case for that. And it, it, you know, they, they say, well, VAR didn't check it, but the, the VAR, who was Andre Mariner, he would have looked at it and then he'd have decided, well, that is not a clear and obvious error. So moving on and come back to the Casemiro incident. 
that's something that's not really been brought up a great deal. I, I completely agree that I understand why it was a red card offence. But when you look at it, is it a clear and obvious error that Anthony Taylor gave him a yellow card rather than a red card? There's certainly not a consistent thread there. You go back to the Sabitz challenge on Feist a few weeks ago. Brendan Rodgers thought that was a red card. I didn't. It was it was clumsy uh, from Sabitzer to have his his foot up like that. He was trying to block a clearance, I think, and in the end, his his studs go on uh, Feist's shin, and it looked quite bad. But I don't think there was massive intent there or any real nastiness. Who someone who was lucky was Bruno Fernandes last week when he needlessly and quite snidely left one on Claudio Bravo when he was rushing down to try and block the ball. I thought he was quite lucky not to have been sent off for that because that was deliberate and it was completely unnecessary. With the Sabitzer one, I think that was just that was just accidental. With Casemiro's again, you have to have that context of that. His, his I mean, his error there is that he can make that chack that tackle without his foot being lifted he can just slide across the turf I think if Wan-Bissaka is in that situation he's probably sliding in and he's winning the ball and he's not giving a referee a decision to make Casemiro treads a fine line by bringing his foot up to win the ball and then of course when that happens if you if you hit if your foot hits the ball it's going to bounce up and hit someone's shin the chart I mean the chance of it are very very high and then then that gives the referee a decision to make I mean, I've seen some United fans say, well, Andre Mariner was the referee who sent off Casemiro last month against Crystal Palace. I mean, that was very, very different um, incidents. What is relevant is that Mariner was the referee for Leicester-Chelsea on Saturday. And this was what Ten Hag mentioned. And there was an objectively worse foul and a similar foul in that game by Ricardo Pereira on João Felix. The, Pereira did get booked in the game, but I don't think he was actually booked for that that foul. And looking at that foul, it looks like a red card offence. But Mariner on the pitch, the VAR, neither of them thought it was a red card offence. So, I mean, I hate using the word inconsistency with referees, but there's no better word to use uh, to, 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 to describe them because this has been a situation that's been ongoing for, for decades, really. The standard isn't getting any better. We thought with VAR coming in, it would make things easier. I think it's made things worse because the, where the standards are all over the shop, there's no... This system that has been brought in that purports to be objective is being applied subjectively because the standards are all over the shop. Referees are human, so they're going to officiate games very, very differently. But if you're applying the law, and there is a there is a law book out there for football... You, you would imagine they are applying it consistently or they should be applying it consistently and they're not. And that's the nub of it with this one with, with Anthony Taylor in that you've got an incident the previous day where I think Andre Mariner, has he must have that as the bar yesterday. He must have on his mind, I cocked up yesterday not giving that red card. I sure as hell better give this a red card even though it's not as bad an offence as the Pereira one on Felix. So we're going to go round and round in circles until the standards of officiating are quite consistent across the board. And I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon whatsoever. Howard Webb's supposed to be the saver, isn't he? But it's not quite working out at the moment. Obviously, he's at the top and it's not made that much of an impact so far. Um, Hopefully, he can only get better. Let's let's look at it that way. Um, that'll be all for part one. We'll be back in a moment for part two. 
So Rich, you discussed the midfield battle earlier on in part one, and it was obviously an important part of the game. Sancho started at number 10, as we expected, and Tenar kind of discussed his quick feet and his creativity is the reason for that. But it also meant Fernandez dropped into a deeper role uh, alongside Casemiro. Now, we're not used to seeing Fernandez play though. I mean, he's played in all sorts of positions this season on the left actually at Anfield on the right obviously in in central attack midfield so it was probably in hindsight a bad decision wasn't it to to do that makeshift midfield because at the end it just didn't work with Sancho in that number 10 position no and of course you can always try and say it's much easier to pick fault with lineup after a game's happened doesn't yeah. it and we can hold our hands up and say that but even from when the lineup dropped you, you were a bit worried that it was a bit too attack-minded. It was a sort of lineup that you'd maybe pick on FIFA or something just to go for goals, goals, goals. And it was almost like United were just trying to run before they could walk. You, you get the sense that they didn't just want to win, they wanted to win convincingly to get that goal difference boosted, to get the confidence flowing, to get goals into Veghorst, you know, to, to real make a statement that they can beat the, the, the lower teams in the division with relative ease. And it just backfired because United... Yes, they had an extra player whenever they went forward, but first of all, they weren't getting on the ball enough in, in the good areas. And when they did have the ball in possession, the players just didn't quite know what their roles were. I mean, so often, Jaden Sancho drifted to the right and he was basically man-marking Anthony. And you had Wan-Bissaka, Sancho and Anthony all in the same sort of cluster of space and there was no one in the middle to pick the ball up when, when they got it. On the one occasion, really, that Sancho did play as a number 10, he released Rashford and he should have scored a goal. And... You know, it, it was certainly a formation that has something to offer. You can see why United might want to use it, but it's a formation they should use in the game that they're chasing or when they're in desperate need of a goal, not one that you use from the offset because it leaves you so vulnerable at the back. And again, as we said, that Southampton, for all their issues this season, their one strength is the midfield. Lavia and Ward-Prowse is a really good midfield and they've got a lot of creativity and composure themselves there. So United had, had lost that midfield battle. Like I said before, Casemiro was even sent off, really. There was chances for for Southampton on the break and they only sort of grew as the, as the game went on. And for United, I just feel there has to come a time soon where Fernandez just has to play in his best position because Fernandez so often mirrors United's form themselves. If you think United's best wins this season, Fernandez has played well himself, no matter what role it's in. And when United play badly, Fernandez usually has an absolute horror show himself. So it's no surprise that those two things go hand in hand. And we've seen that in the last three games. Liverpool was atrocious. Fernandez was atrocious. Betis, United were much better. Fernandez was much better. Southampton was a mixed display. Fernandez had a mixed display because he had a he was overall pretty poor, but he remained United's sort of best attacking outlet. He made two big chances in the game, played two key passes, and yet United still didn't find a way through. So I think there comes a time when, for all his versatility, Fernandez just needs to play the number 10 again. Because yes, it was great that he will fill in wherever and he's got that mentality where he's happy to help the team out. But you have to play your best players in their best position. And Fernandez is United's best attacking midfielder. And I know there's a shortage elsewhere on the pitch and they have to fill in where they can at the moment because they've got this injury crisis and they've got players missing. But I just feel that they should have stuck to what they know. McTominay or Fred should have started. You need someone to do that dirty work and they just didn't have it from the off. And they went for a team that was a bit too flashy, a bit too attack-minded. And, you know, you 
playing attacking players is obviously going to give you more of a goal threat when you're in the final third. But if you don't have the players to do the dirty work to get you there, you're never going to get those chances anyway. And I think it was just another sort of reality check for United that the best 11 sort of talented technical players does not make for the most cohesive lineup. And I think, you know, he's got a lot right this season, but I think Ten Hag got his lineup wrong against Southampton. I've been banging that drum for a while now, Rich, about Fernandes and, and attacking midfield. So we'll, we'll make a band with that. Um, that was my kind of post-Anfield piece. He needs to play an attacking midfield. As you've said, play your best players in their best positions. It's as simple as that, really. I'll open this question up to both of you then. Where, where is Sancho's best position then? Because he had a tendency to drift out to the right during the game yesterday. His best goal-to-minute ratio at Dortmund was on the left. Regardless, forget who plays on either side and forget competition. Where is Sancho's best position in both your opinions? The bench at the moment. <laughs> and that's not being that harsh. Always going, that was always going to be the but, response. No, that's, that's fair that's enough. Not, but if he has to play, where, where would you play him? Yeah, I think he's really good as an impact sub. I think he comes onto games and he can give United that foothold in a match and he's got the ability to unlock defences. And right now, I don't think he's... I don't, I don't think he's consistent enough to start on the right. You know, Anthony's going to be playing there and Rashford's the best player on the left and Fernandes is the best player for the middle. So for me, I think Sancho is best as a sub at the moment. And if he's going to start, for me, it would be on the left-hand side. But that's not why they, start, they signed him. They need him to work as a right winger. And the fact that he's another one of these inverted left wingers just adds to his problem, really. It sort of sums up his whole situation and, some, and shows why Ten Hag did trial him as a number 10. I think there is merit in that but as we've just said Fernandes is the player who, who should be playing there right now so I'd probably bring Sancho off the bench maybe try him a bit more through the middle see if he can really hit the ground running there but for now I, I just can't justify a starting role for him the, the trouble yeah, he's becoming a bit of an enigma isn't he the, the trouble they have is that beyond Fernandes is not an obvious number 10. Ten Hag tried it with Van der Beek and Kel Surprise, he was useless. Uh, I think Ten Hag was... I'm trying to see Weghorst, not a fantastic number 10 something. There's almost what some... Uh, it's, it's almost like that, that Dutch favouritism that we were accusing Ten Hag of uh, in, in pre-season uh, is, is rearing its head again. <laughs> yeah, Chong playing. Yeah. But they've, they've, not got, they've not got an alternative to Fernandes there. And Van der Beek's he's out until uh, he's, he's out for the rest of the season anyway. So he's clearly looked for someone who can I make a project of here, and he's happened upon Sancho as that player. But apart from the odd game where he is coming on in games and having the impact, he's not doing it as a starter. And in, if that's the case, you've just got to play Fernandez in the role where he's at his optimum. But we thought this in preseason, and it's been a recurring debate I suppose during the season Fernandes is not completely aligned with what Ten Hag wants from a number 10 Van der Beek when he's actually playing well is but he last played well nearly three years ago probably uh, so there's there's no point even considering him when he is fit never mind when he's injured so going look, looking ahead to next season in particular there, there might be something else that Ten Hag has to do there because if Sancho isn't really cutting it there you may have to look to someone else but it's it's difficult to see who that player would be I, I thought Ericsson might have been used there a little bit more often but Ericsson's played pretty well as a central midfielder this season and he's injured as well Talking about the positive sense, Samuel, uh, Sandra Martinez, I know you picked up on him after a game and kind of said he was really, really in his element, wasn't he? It was almost a siege mentality for Martinez and we know he's that kind of fiery, passionate character. Um, what particularly impressed you about his performance uh, on Sunday afternoon? 
There were a number of times where he was boxed in inside his own third and another defender would have slashed the ball up up the pitch or they'd have cleared it into touch. But his understanding of how to how to deceive opponents is is really, really impressive in the the amount of times he would just keep the ball, he'd sell them a dummy, and then he'd open up the space and he plays a progressive pass and more often than not, it was starting breakaways for United. And we saw in that Leeds game at Ellen Road last month that he, he can actually be a game changer. It's it's not really advisable to use him in that role because you always want him starting. But bringing him on into into defence, adjusting the balance, uh, it, it does free up more opportunities. There are more, there are more avenues to explore because his passing is so good. It was a little bit peculiar when he did come off at the time he did because he was replaced by Maguire and you thought, well, this is United just kind of accepting that they'll take the draw and uh, safeguarding, you know, just, just avoiding defeat rather than trying to maybe nick a win because with Martinez on the pitch, you have got more options there, even though he's playing in the, you know, he's playing the opposite third to the one that you're trying to get the goal. So that's, that's been one of the um, most impressive aspects about him all season in, in that he is almost as much an asset as an attacker as he is an asset as a defender and he, he got booked quite early on for a cynical cynical foul, rightly so. That was 11 versus 11. But as as you said, when United went down to 10 men, it did seem to bring out the best in him. And he was he was certainly, him, him and Shaw were United's best players yesterday. David De Gea as well, Rich, a, a clean sheet. Um, he pulled off some fantastic saves. And you obviously weren't on the podcast uh, last week, but he's funny, isn't he? We go from talking about these mistakes that De Gea does with the ball at his feet, but no one can argue with his shot stopping ability because he remains excellent in that area. And he, he showed that again, didn't he, against Southampton? Yeah, I mean, he has his flaws, but he has his huge positives as well. And he's so much more often the hero than the villain for United, David De Gea. And of course, there's always got to be the long-term concerns about how he fits into this side and whether United need to make the ruthless call and get someone who is more comfortable with the ball at feet and more aligned with Ten Hag's ultimate vision for the team. But if you want a shot stopper and someone who, whose job is to keep the ball out of the back of the net, there's very few as good as, as David De Gea. He made a good save from Walcott in the first half. I think at the time I said it was a brilliant save, but if he doesn't save that, you know, he'll be back back page news again and there'll be huge concerns for, for his goalkeeping ability because it is straight at him. It's a good reflex save. More impressive was the one in the second half when Walcott burst through on goal. Martinez did excellent to shift it out onto his left foot and to force him into a tighter angle but De Gea did brilliantly for, for actually not rushing off his line because a lot is held against De Gea for not you know being gunko and going off his line to intercept balls all the time he, he is getting better with that but when a player is through on goal from that far out it's actually takes a lot for a keeper to stand his ground and to not come out because it forces the striker to bring the ball forward and to make the decision themselves and it put the seed of doubt in Walcott's head. If, if De Gea can rush off his line, he's got a relatively easy finish, but the fact De Gea stood his ground meant Walcott had to run an extra 30 yards. By the time he'd got there, he'd taken a horrible touch, taken that wide and he couldn't get the finish that, that was required to find the back of the net. So De Gea, for all his faults, does have a, a, a very specific sort of skill trait there and Sometimes it comes back to haunt him, but I think United have to just deal with the fact that he is their number one goalkeeper to the end of the season and probably will be long-term as well. But like I said, I think ultimately for De Gea, he is so often an unsung hero in these games. It was the same against Leicester a few weeks previous as well, where United go on to win that comfortably. But with not, without De Gea in the first half, they 
they lose that game. So I think that the brilliance of De Gea is just that he's so often understated. And of course, he has these games where he makes ridiculous saves and he makes a string of saves. You think of that Arsenal game a few years ago where he broke the Premier League record for most saves in the match. But the brilliance of De Gea for me is just that every week he seems to make at least one save where any other goalkeeper, you'd be saying that's a career highlight. And for De Gea, it's just another day at the office. I must say, though, about that Phil Walcott chance, if that was a quicker player, I think they would have scored. Yeah. It's his lack of pace, really. He's a pensioner now, isn't he, for, uh, Walcott? <laughs> so uh, he was on a Zimmer frame going for own goal, and, and that kind of messed up the opportunity. Rich, we talked about it on Friday. We talked about the here long-term or in short-term, really. Um, what would you do, and, and where do you kind of weigh in on the debate about his future? Because there's obviously a decision to be made that he's in talks uh, currently with the club over a new deal. Um, do you think it's now a position that needs to be prioritised in the summer or do you think United can go another season with De Gea as their first choice goalkeeper? I still think that whoever you bring in is not going to be as good at stopping the ball as De Gea. So whoever you buy won't replace him as the actual number one heading into next season. But you need to have a viable understudy because for all his brilliance and all that glowing endorsement I've given him, even if he has a stinker, he's not getting dropped because you're not going to play Heaton or Butland for a sort of meaningful Premier League game. You just you just aren't unless there's an injury and you're forced to do so. So I think United need to get back to that dynamic they had when, when De Gea and Henderson was a real question mark every single week. They need to have someone who's a proper challenger and someone who offers something different as, as a backup, someone who is really comfortable with the, the ball of feet. You think of like David Rea at Brentford, someone like Sanchez even at, at Brighton, someone who's a bit more in that modern mould really and ironically the two keepers who have replaced him at international <laughs> level as well. And I think you just need to have someone who really is there and a viable alternative now. I think that's what De Gea needs because, you know, worst case, it means De Gea performs better than them and he keeps his place. And if not, then you've got someone who can come in and make a real difference. And I do think there's going to be a moment where Ten Hag has to make a ruthless call and for all his brilliant, brilliant service, you still do get a lot of problems of the United's own making from David De Gea. The distribution is hesitancy when the ball comes to the box at times like I said it can work to his advantage for those long range 101s but yeah I think that if United really do want to have the total control and be a team who dominates matches then it will stem from their goalkeeper and De Gea still looks like a bit of an awkward fit on that one so I think short term De Gea is the number one but they need to get someone who's a viable challenger to that spot You've not mentioned the perfect candidate for that role, Rich. A world-class goalkeeper, brilliant shot stop and great for his feet. It's Martin Dubravka. He should come back. To I thought you were going to say Tyrone Marshall. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ty conceded. How many goals in the media game, as we always bang on about on this podcast? About as many, as, plenty about as, as, many as De Gea conceded at Anfield. Many I, yeah, I thought uh, you were going to say as many as Dubravka exactly conceded. <laughs> That's fair enough then. But That's at least we enough. scored. Um, very true. Samuel, if we look at uh, the changes that were made with 20 minutes to go, obviously Palestri came on and Ganacho came on. I was quite surprised at those changes, actually. I thought they were quite brave, both lads, obviously uh, younger lads. Um, what did you think about the impact they had from the bench? Obviously, it was a shame that Ganacho went off his injury. And could you also give an update on Palestri's future? Because I noticed you've obviously wrote a line um, about what could happen uh, this summer regarding his future. 
I think Palestri's had six substitute appearances now, and in maybe five or six of them, he's made a, a notable contribution, um, whether that's been to create a goal or have a, a key role in a goal. And he did pretty well again yesterday. As you said, it was quite brave of Ten Hag to to make those changes, but it was also logical. United were more balanced with those two young whippersnappers either side of Rashford, fresh legs. Uh, Rashford against Walker Peters was certainly an issue in, in the second half and Walker Peters put a good cross in before he did hit the post. And Garnacho is obviously not an obvious uh, winger to bring on to try and counter Walker Peters. Uh, but it was, a, it was a class case of the best form of defence, his attack, and he did get him, but he didn't really have a lot of joy against him either. Uh, he, he got injured with, with with a tackle by Walker Peters that was completely legitimate. And then you've had some racist morons online uh, leaving racist comments in Walker Peters' comments section on his Instagram page and Kelsey Pree's Instagram haven't taken those comments down. Uh, unfortunately, social media is we, we do our utmost to keep our head above the cesspit but that's it's it's an ongoing struggle you it's you you, you don't want to be dragged down to to the pond scum but unfortunately you do uh, you do have it flung at you even though you try to avoid it so uh not a surprise but that's that's the way of the world these days but with palestri it's, it's not a surprise that united uh, are planning to let him go out on loan again next season I think the interesting aspect of that more so is where he does go on loan because if he goes back on loan to La Liga a La Liga side sorry having had a couple of spells with Alaves he might as well just be sold to that La Liga side eventually because he needs to play either for a Premier League club on loan or a championship club. I'm not saying a championship club would be beneath him, but for the stage he's at, his development, where he's a 21-year-old, he's a full Uruguay international, he needs to be able to get a Premier League loan move. And there are certain Premier League clubs where you'd think there would be logic in sending him there. Um, I mean, just just thinking of one club like Brentford, you could see him maybe having a role for them. Uh, if, if Southampton were to stay up, I don't think that would necessarily be a bad move. That said, I can't really see Southampton staying up, unfortunately, for them. So if he is to go on loan in England, I think it does need to be to a Premier League team. If he doesn't, then I don't really see him have a long-term future at United, which which would be a pity because he's, he's clearly got something about him. And not only is he a good player, but he's got a good attitude. He had to wait more than two years to make his debut. The wait for that debut was quite peculiar, even though he did spend quite a long, you know, a fair amount of that time on loan at Alaves. But it was overdue. When he has come on in games, he has had a good impact. And it's not like he's just coming on in games where United are coasting and they're winning easily. He came on against Leeds at Old Trafford with United 2-0 down, did brilliantly to keep the ball. That led to the first goal from Marcus Rashford. Uh, he's he's killed off certain games as well with with the contributions he's made. And so he's he's a very useful game changer. And also he's He's ahead of Anthony Alanga in the pecking order now. Uh, that was reflected again at the weekend when when Palestri was actually named in the squad and, and Alanga wasn't. So I, as a, going back to the previous point about the, the midfield issue, I think if they'd not started Sancho against Southampton, which I don't think any of us really had him down in, in our personal teams to start, uh, th- their personal preferences, they're not predictions, as we have to keep on stressing ad nauseum. But if they'd had Sancho, Garnacho and Palestri as three game changers to come on, that's that's quite a deep 
attacking bench in a season where United have certainly been not short of quantity of attackers but they have been short of the quality of attackers and that would have been a better balance I think if they if they needed to call upon them in this this parallel universe where Sancho doesn't start the game and they have two midfielders up against Ward Prowse and Lavia so Pelestri could still have a you know big impact before the end of the season and certainly this Betis game in midweek I would suggest that's a good opportunity to give him an overdue a long overdue full United debut. I have to ask you, Samuel, um, am I getting too old to be considered a, a young whippersnapper at five-a-side now? You've, you've been around the block now for a while in Manchester, I think. Yeah, I think you've been uh, you've been on our radar for four years. So, yeah, as... as, as He's Andre Carrera, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think <laughs> Ronald Koeman Is that an insult? Is that a compliment? Uh, well, he's, he's, he's been quite good for Fulham this season. But, but Ronald Koeman said that Ross Barkley was no longer a young player that time when he was 22. And it was probably a fair point given how long he'd he'd been playing professional football football so yeah the uh the goalposts have changed there i think rich is trying to tell us i need to move away he wants rid of it on that note we'll end part two and we'll be back in a moment for part three So Rich, moving on from that game at the weekend, we return to Europa League action, the thrill of it on Thursday night. And it's a game against Real Betis away in Spain. Now, the first leg, it's essentially killed the tie, hasn't it? It was a brilliant response to the Anfield defeat and a convincing win in the end. So I wanted to ask you, do you think we'll be able to see, what do you think we'll see, rotation from Ten Hag? Because we know that he really doesn't like to rotate his team, even when it seems absurd not to. In my opinion, Thursday night's a, a great opportunity to rotate. You saw De Gea after the game at the weekend discussing the toll it's taken on the players. So do you think he will rotate? And also, what do you think of Ten Hag's policy on that? Are you a fan or do you think you should maybe tweak it now and then? It shows how, stake, how high the stakes are this season, doesn't it? That he's always been quite reluctant to do so. He's, he's always emphasised how important it was to win a trophy. So I think that's why for the Carabao Cup run, basically, I think other than that Charlton game, there wasn't as much change as most people would have would have liked to have seen. And like I said, just because Ten Hag has to deliver. I mean, whenever a United manager is appointed, they are always sold the line of we will back you for a few years. But ultimately, if your first season is one of failure, your head can be on the chopping block. And Ten Hag has known that he's had to deliver the goods this season. and He has done so. And he's done so with a core of players who he can rely upon. And they've formed the backbone across all the competitions. And of course, Thursday night does represent an opportunity for United to make a few changes. But it's the penultimate game for the international break. So there's no real need from Ten Hag's selfish point of view to do so because after the Fulham game on Sunday, he didn't need to worry about things for another two weeks. And of course, Casemiro's red card now means he's not going to play in the in the next four domestic games. So he should play against Betis because otherwise he's not going to play again for, for a long time. And obviously you can say, well, maybe just give him a rest, give him a prolonged spell out of the team, but he'll want to play, I'm sure. I'm sure he'll be eager to get some minutes under his belt. In defence, you know, Varane's played a lot of football at the moment. You'd say it's a sensible decision to to rest him, bring either Lindelof, if he recovers from his illness, or, or Maguire back in. And, of course, you can play short, centre-back as well, get Malassia in, you give Martinez a bit of a rest if you wanted to. But we've spoken about how many attacking sort of options United have, but you still get the sense that Ten Hag will stick with the ones he, he trusts the most, really. It, it is a very comfortable cushion. United would have to have a disastrous result not to go through. And 
you can have the safety net of playing someone like, well, saving someone like Rashford for the bench. I don't think he should start by any means, but considering the the injury crisis in midfield, no Ericsson, no Van der Beek, we'll see if Sabitz is back or not. One of the senior players is going to have to play there. We've said Casemiro, and then he's been so reluctant to use Fred and McTominay that one of them will, will at least have to start, but you wouldn't expect both of them to. And maybe this is the game where Sancho should have started as the number 10. It'd be interesting to see if he's given the, the chance to do so. I think there'll be about three or four changes, but I don't think it's going to be as wholesale as, as some fans want. I think it's still going to be a case of get the job done, don't have any complacency. And like I said, it's been a real horrible, grueling fixture schedule for United, but there's light at the end of the tunnel now. And from Ten Hag's point of view, if they can just get through these next two games, then he can have a, a week or two, almost a fortnight off without having to worry about player fitness. Are you looking forward to your trip to Spain, Samuel? And logistically, have you sorted it out? Because I seem to recall, I did offer the pack a lift, didn't I, when we were at the press conference? I said, I'll do it for cheaper than, was it a bus, bus price they were quoting? The bus price has been sorted. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, we won't require your. Oh, okay. uh, I won't be your, needed. Your doubtless uh, loyal and reliable services for that. But it's yeah, I'm almost qualifying for Spanish residency. The amount of times I've I've been there in the last <laughs> twelve or thirteen months. United have obviously played Atletico, uh, Real Sociedad, Barcelona, now um, Real Betis, and of course the training camp was in Cadiz, and they played another game in in, in Betis. So I've I've had I've had the privilege of going to the Betis Stadium, which is pretty good. It looks like a nice area of, of Seville as well. Uh, but Seville is is, is beautiful. Uh, for those of us who are fortunate to go there for for the Champions League tie five years ago, it's a, it's a great great city. Very very pretty. When you look at the remaining teams in the competition, Samuel, uh, it's very very winnable, isn't it? When you actually look at who's who's left in, I think Arsenal are obviously the biggest threat, but. Yeah, it's it's probably a more competitive, at the risk of getting ahead of ourselves, it'd probably be a more competitive final field than it usually is for the Europa League in that there are some clubs there that do seem genuinely bothered about winning it and it, it could salvage certain seasons. Severe have not had a good season in La Liga. I'm not too sure where they are now, but it wasn't too long ago that they were actually in the relegation zone after a good chunk of the season had been played. Juventus have had their points deduction in Serie A. So if, I mean, it's highly unlikely they'll finish in the top four there. So if they win the Europa League, they get into the Champions League through that back door. Arsenal, I suspect, are quite sanguine. If if they do somehow go out to sport in Lisbon, it's quite finely poised that tie, but they have got home advantage. And then Feyenoord, I think, at top of the Eredivisie at the moment. So although the quality of the Eredivisie isn't you know, particularly great, you, you can't really... Um, you can't really write them off. I think they're playing Shakhtar as well. And if, if Shakhtar do get past Feyenoord, you've got this narrative of a team from Ukraine possibly uh, doing remarkably well in European competition and, and what would be an uplifting story for the people of Ukraine, given the conflict that's gone on there in the past 13 months. But United are obviously going to be, at the moment, they must be, if not the favourites, one of the two main favourites. Uh, Roma are obviously still in the, the Europa League and look like they're going to get past Real, Real Sociedad as well. So that throws up the prospects of United going back to Rome and encountering Mourinho again. Uh, I think Leverkusen look in a decent position to get through, but they're not playing particularly well in the Bundesliga. And you've got the Chabi Alonso uh, 
subplot there as well, where he's manager of them. So it's it's not a it's not an underwhelming field, and, and United were quite fortunate in 2017 that they did pretty much avoid all the relative big hitters left until they got to the final against Ajax, and they they completely schooled Ajax that evening. It was a, I remember Peter Boss, the Ajax manager, saying his press conference afterwards. Uh, I think his first words were, "It was a boring game," uh, which was <laughs> quite a uh, a decent way of, of of trying to conceal his bitterness. But he, he just didn't have any answer for how United set up to nullify Ajax that evening. Uh, so yeah, I mean, provided United don't somehow screw it up on Thursday, there's there's a good chance that they'll have quite an enticing tie in the quarterfinals. And of course, you can draw teams from from your own country. So should Arsenal get through, there there is the possibility that they'd they'd get Arsenal in the quarters. It would be impressive if they mess that up on, on Thursday with that advantage. Um, Rich, do you detest the international break as much as me? I, as, I think as a Welsh f- football fan, I'm quite looking forward to it. I thought actually. you were going to say that. That's why I asked The you. new era of Wales with our new look team. It'd be interesting. But I mean, f- for me as well, personal point of view, the uh, National League doesn't stop because of the international break, let me tell you that. Exactly. So uh, it'll, be, it'll be difficult um, United-wise to maybe take too much from it, especially if they don't win either of the games this week. But from my own personal point of view, no, I'm, I'm relishing the international break, believe it or not. <sighs> Only man in the country that must be looking forward to it. Oh, among the other thousands of Wrexham fans, to be fair. Um, well, to end the podcast then, Rich, obviously we've just discussed it is the international break coming up now. Um, this part of the season, how would you assess United's campaign so far? Because look, uh, Carabao Cup win, still in contention for the Europa League. <laughs> the Premier League chat has finally died down, as me and Samuel were laughing about yesterday. But it's been a, it's been a very good season so far, hasn't it? Exactly. I think this just needs to be that sort of reality check to see how far United have come, and particularly since the the World Cup break, they've really sort of made the statement that they are the third best team in England. Obviously, they've had their highest moment of the season and their lowest moment of the season in recent memory, but all in all, you've got to go back to last summer. This is even before those first two defeats of the season. Everyone said United season will be a success if they finish in the top four and win a trophy. They've already won a trophy and they look certain to finish in the top four and you'd say top three as well at that because even if they continue to drop points, I can't see any other team being consistent enough to to punish them for that and particularly not two teams to punish them and for them to drop out. So I think you've just got to take a step back. Obviously, the context of the season, how it's gone on, there's always going to be a greed and desire for more trophies and for United to finish as high as they can, but you've got to just look at how far they've come and it's a real solid basis uh, for, for building into the, the next year ahead so yeah I think you've got to say United have, have done a large part of what we want from them this season and yeah it'd be interesting to see just whether or not they do actually build upon these solid foundations or if they find a way to to not do so We'll leave it there then gents because I'm off to watch the under-21s at Lee Sports Village tonight so I need a hat, gloves seven layers on so it's going to take us at least three hours to prepare myself um, Thank you very much Samuel thanks for your time You're welcome thank you Stephen and thank you, Rich. Thank you very much. I hope you uh, enjoy Lee. Let's put it that way. I absolutely love Lee Sports Village. And to the listeners, take care. Have a great week. Thank you very much.